This morning, we're looking at uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start something. We're going to walk through the, the seven letters to the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation. Um, and this is something that I, I did. Uh, I did a whole series through the whole book of Revelation about eight years ago, and it was like, that was hard. Um, so we're not going to do that, but we're going to do the seven letters to the seven churches. Um, so it's, it's a little less of an undertaking. Uh, but I, what, what I want you to know is, is these letters are from a, a, a pastor named John, given a word from Jesus to these churches. These churches are in real places. Uh, they gathered in, in real times. These are real people. So he's writing these letters. Uh, and the one thing we have to, to understand about uh, the book of Revelation is it's, it's apocalyptic literature. Uh, and that, that word means the unveiling of that which was previously unseen. So it's almost like there is, there's a curtain between heaven and earth, uh, and we're going we're gonna to take back the curtain, and God is going to reveal to us uh, what's, what's really happening in the world and what's really happening. Uh, okay, so it's the unveiling of that which was previously unseen. Now, um, You'll notice as we read these, these letters that there are all sorts of, and this is typical of apocalyptic literature, there's, uh, there's all sorts of, of images and simile and metaphor and symbols, and uh, so some things sound weird and look weird and feel weird, uh, but they would have meant something to the people who were first hearing these things. Uh, so there's no code. We don't have to break a code. Uh, Revelation isn't, isn't like... Uh, is, is not like telling the future about like nuclear wars and things like that. This is, these, this is the people who were hearing this for the first time, it would have meant something uh, to them. And so we have to figure out what did it mean to them so that we can figure out what does it mean for us today? Does that make sense? All right. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're sort of jumping into. Uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Uh, this is the letter to the church in Ephesus. Before we read it, let's pray. Thank you. God, for this word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Uh, Holy Spirit, do what you do. We don't know how you do it or how it works, but, but somehow, some way, you show up and, and we hear the word of the Lord. You speak to us. So we pray for that to happen right now. Humble us so that we're ready. Startle us, shake us. In Jesus' name, amen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. So these are the words of Jesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Already we're going, what? The seven stars? Which seven stars? What are you talking about? So seven biblically means what? Anyone? Perfect, wholeness, completeness. Seven stars probably means all the stars, like the whole universe. These are the words of him who holds all things together, is another way to put it, using some Paul words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who also walks among the seven golden lampstands. Just so we're clear, lampstands are churches. 
We'll get to it. More on that later. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. This is the one who holds all things together. This is Jesus who holds the universe in his right hand. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but who are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first, or you have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Your church will die. I'll remove it. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We will go that far. So, lots of good stuff there. Can't get to it all, obviously, clearly, always, every week. Nicolaitans, we won't talk about them today because they come up later in the letters. So, we'll, we'll rub up against them later. Um, so you might have questions about that. That's okay. Google's your friend, by the way. Have you ever had the experience of someone coming over to your house or your apartment or wherever it is you live? Have you ever had the experience of come, someone coming to your front door unexpectedly? Like they ring the doorbell or they knock on the door. You answer the door. You recognize them. And you're like, Oh, hi. But very quickly, you recognize that this isn't a pop by. You forgot something at church or work. Here it is. I'm out. You, you, you get the sense that they want to come in. Unexpectedly, they show up and they want to come into your house. Now, for me, whenever this happens, this is always a, oh, moment. Not because I don't like having people over at our house. That's great. It becomes a, oh, you know, moment because I'm the kind of guy who likes to be prepared for these sorts of situations, right? I want to make sure that there's no dishes in the sink getting all crusty. I want to make sure that the pillows and blankets uh, in the family room there uh, are all put to where they need to be. I want to make sure that like the kitty toys aren't just scattered about because I don't want anybody stepping on something and tripping and falling. I want things to look good. I want to be hospitable, Right? So when someone comes to your house unexpectedly and they ring the doorbell, they walk into your house, they walk into your mess. And you think to yourself, oh my goodness, now they know how we really live. Oh. There's always that little twinge of embarrassment, right? Have you ever had this experience? So we're the only ones, okay. Now, unless you're like a neat freak and your house is always perfect, congratulations, by the way, if that is the case. You are, um, how do I want to say this? Something for the rest of us to shoot for. I'll put it like that. Congratulations. But if you're not like that, then you've had this experience. Okay, hold that thought and listen to these words from the late, great Eugene Peterson. 
The churches of Revelation show us that churches are not Victorian parlors where everything is always picked up and ready for guests. They're messy family rooms. Entering a person's house unexpectedly, we are sometimes met with a barrage of apologies. St. John does not apologize. Things are out of order to be sure, but that's what happens when churches are lived in. They are not showrooms. They are living rooms. And if the persons living in them are sinners, there are going to be clothes scattered about, handprints on the woodwork, and mud on the carpet. For as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the religious to repentance, and there's no indication as yet that he's changed his policy in that regard, churches are going to be an embarrassment to the fastidious and an affront to the upright. St. John sees them simply as lampstands. They are places, locations where the light of Christ is shown. They are not themselves the light. There's nothing particularly glamorous about churches, nor, on the other hand, is there anything particularly shameful about them. They simply are. So good. Here's the problem. How do you market that? How do you advertise that? How do you how do you how do you do that? You, you, how do you put that on your website? Like try try to or or renew community. We are not glamorous. We simply are. Like print that on a koozie and hand them out at the Fourth of July parade. We're not glamorous. We simply are. Oh my goodness, he's right though, isn't he? Churches aren't showrooms where everything is in perfect order. They're messy family rooms, messy living rooms, because people like us live there. And let's be honest about it. Sometimes people like us, people who are us, well, we make a mess of things. So as we enter into the letters to the seven churches, I think that's an important reality for us to remember. I think it's a really important reality for us to remember. Here's why. Perhaps you've heard it said that Jesus' people or churches are the hands and feet of Jesus. Have you heard this? Jesus' people, churches, are the, the very presence of Jesus in a lost and broken world, so loved by God. All of that is good and beautiful, and even, even come, those images come to us from the Scriptures. The Scriptures tell us that, that the church is the body of Christ, the presence of Jesus in the world, and that's good and beautiful, and I love it, and we should at times live into that, but we also have to recognize that there's a dangerous thing going on with that too. Because if that's the only way we think about Jesus, then what happens when something goes wrong in a church or in churches or in the big church? What happens when something goes horribly wrong? What happens when someone is abused by someone in power in the church? What happens when leaders in the church, there's like a financial scandal and leaders of the church embezzle money in order to to enrich themselves? What happens when a church gets gossipy and people's real reputations, their lives are ruined because of it? What happens when there's an affair or some sort of other scandal that sort of hurts people really deeply? What happens when the church cozies up to power and makes all sorts of real abhorrent compromises to integrity? What happens when that happens? Well, sometimes people look at that and they say, 
if that's what Jesus is about, I'm out. Forget Jesus. And they walk away from the church and they walk away from faith altogether sometimes. Or sometimes people will stand at a distance and look at the church from the outside and say, what? That's what Jesus is all about? That's what the church is all about? Uh-uh. uh-uh. No way. Not having anything to do with that. Perhaps even sitting here together or watching online. Perhaps you're like, I don't know about this anymore. I'm just not sure. Some of us know people like this. Hear Jesus' words. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden, the seven golden lampstands. So as we enter in to the letters to the seven churches, it's important for us to remember that Jesus is standing among us. Yes. But this is also Jesus standing outside of us. Beyond us. Above us looking down on, looking at from the outside, and, and speaking words to us. Sometimes those words are words of encouragement. Sometimes those words are words of, of healing and grace and forgiveness. And sometimes those words are words of warning. They're words of rebuke. They're words of correction. Go back, do the things you did at first, or I will take your lampstand away. It will be gone. Your church will die. Okay, that's nice. So what is Jesus saying to the church in Ephesus? Let's get a little specific here, okay? See if it might connect a little bit. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's stop right there and think about light and lamps and lampstands. Right? It's just an image. Again, it's a symbol. It's a metaphor. Lamps, light, lampstands. We have to remember that symbols and metaphors, they mean something to John, and they would have meant something to the people who would have been originally hearing these words. So, to the early Jewish ears, all, ears, all sorts of images and thoughts and stories would have been sort of sparked in their brains when they would have heard the, these metaphors of light and lampstands and lamp. Light was the first thing, the very first thing that God spoke into existence. At the beginning of all things, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So light meant something. Here's an important passage from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 49, verse 6. God says through the prophet, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So light, lanterns, lampstands. Light speaks of, of God's desire that the whole world might know the love and salvation of God, right? So when you have Jesus walking in and among the lampstands, this idea of light would have, would have opened up a whole world of thought for the people who were thinking about it. Jesus himself returns to this idea in the Sermon on the Mount in the very beginning. This is in Matthew chapter 5 when he says this, you are the light of the world, Right? And the people who would have heard this for the very first time would have been thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, Jesus is connecting. This comes from Isaiah. They would have known their scriptures well, and they would have remembered that 
that God is saying, I will make you a light to the Gentiles, that, every, that the whole world might know the love and salvation of God. Jesus is essentially calling people back to their roots, back to their heritage, back to their origin, back to the purpose for which they were formed, or maybe said better, into the future, into their destiny, into their mission and purpose in the world right now, a little later on in Mark in Mark chapter 5, he says this, or not chapter 5, in Mark, do, do, you bring a, do you bring a lamp into a room and put it under a bowl? No, you don't do that. Of course not. You don't have a light and then not share it. That doesn't make any sense. He says, no, you put it on its stand and it gives light to everybody in the whole house. So when you have Jesus walking among the lampstands, lantern, light, for John's audience, they would have been reminded that we are here to show God's redeeming love to the whole world, everyone, all people. That's why we're here. We're a lampstand to bring light of God's redeeming love to the world. Okay, back to verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. So Jesus has some really good things to say about this church. We don't get into specifics, just, we just know it. Then down in verse 4, he says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So he says some really nice things. And then he says, But, but, you have forsaken your first love. What does that mean? At this point, we should all be thinking about things like, is there a story behind this? Like, is there a... Is there a context, first love? What does this mean? Right? So at this point, I'm going to read to you a portion of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19. I'll start at verse 11 if you want to follow along, if you've got it with you. Otherwise, just listen. This is how the book of Acts re reports to us, gives us the story of how the church in Ephesus was planted, how it was started, how it sort of bloomed. Are you ready for this? This is a great story. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So there were people, some Jewish people, Jewish men, who were outside this community of Jesus people. They saw what was happening, and they were like, we want to get in on this. We want a piece of the power. We want to be a part of what's going on in here. So without becoming a part of it, on the outside, they start doing these things. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Right? This is Luke who wrote Acts. This is his way of saying, go ask them. The seven sons of Sceva. Go, that's who they are. You can go verify this with them. Those are the people who are doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? The man then who had the evil spirit 
jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Again, this is a great story. This is how the church in Ephesus started. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A member who had practiced, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread quickly and grew in powder, power. That's how the church in Ephesus got started. Aaron, how did the church in Ames get started? You ever heard of these guys in Seven Sons of Sceva? Like, it's very different, very different story here. When you hear the story of how the church in Ephesus started, what do you think of? What does it sound like? What kinds of feelings does it conjure up inside of you? What is it? It's this chaotic, spontaneous, messy movement. It was weird. People were then taking real risks. They were making real sacrifices. The lives of real people were being transformed. And, and as you read the story, you can sort of hardly keep up with it. People were showing up spontaneously at scroll burning parties, right? So people's lives were being transformed. They were all confessing destructive patterns of behavior. And, and they're like experiencing healing and a new sense of purpose within this new community. People are, are openly inviting their friends, their neighbors, their coworkers, and other people to be a part of this new thing. It was this, in this way, the word of the Lord spread wildly and grew in power. It was spontaneous. It was chaotic. People were openly confessing destructive patterns of behavior. They were experiencing love and healing. They were experiencing acceptance. They were becoming new people. And they were openly inviting others to be a part of it. And it just spread. And then we get to Revelation chapter 2. This is like 30 years later. So a generation later. Jesus says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be the apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. So now, like a generation later, it goes from, from being this sort of spontaneous, chaotic thing, this movement, and it's started to become a thing. Like it's become organized a little bit. And once something becomes organized, it then then what? It, it, needs to be, it needs to be protected. Right? So now they've got these people coming in, these false apostles. They're coming in and saying, I want a piece of this power. So now you have the church concentrating on itself, concentrating only on things like, like right doctrine, on right behavior, on getting the right people in leadership, making sure the right people are in and the, the wrong people are are kept out. And Jesus comes to them and says, what are you doing? You have forsaken your first love. You have forgotten that you are a lampstand to bring light to the world. Recognize how far you've fallen. You're concentrating only on yourself. Repent of these things 
and return to the things you did at first. Remember when this whole thing got started? And it was chaotic and messy and people were making real sacrifices and people were making, taking real chances and people's lives were being transformed. Get back to that. You've forsaken your first love. One person describes this whole reality like this. Do you know what happens or do you know why a band's sophomore album is never as good as its first album? It's because during the creation of the second album, all the band members are picking out carpet. Like they, they got successful and they got rich and they got money and they're focusing on that and they've forsaken their first love. Or it's like an NFL receiver who comes in in the first three years. They're really productive and they make a big splash on the scene and then they get their first big contract and after that their play goes downhill because they've forsaken their first love. Perhaps that's what happens when churches become too internally focused. They're focused on things only like like right doctrine, making sure everybody believes the right things and making sure everybody's got their ducks in a row. On church programming, on electing the right leaders, making sure we, we keep the wrong people out and only have the right people in. And it causes churches to forsake their first love, the spontaneous, chaotic movement of being a lampstand, bringing grace and healing and forgiveness, being a light and a witness of God's love in the world. So consider with me, how can you be a witness to God's love in the world? How can we be a witness of God's love in the world? How do we do it? I mean, we hear that word witness and we get all nauseated, right? It makes us feel nauseous. We're like, don't talk to me about this. Because we've been taught a certain way to think about witnessing. And we think that witnessing is like going out on the streets. Literally, this is the paradigm we've been given. Or maybe talking with coworkers and sort of Winning an argument in order to get them to come to your church and believe the right things and think the way you think. That's what, that's what witnessing is. It's like we have to go out and we have to win an argument and prove God's love for people. We have to prove it. Has anyone ever lost an argument and been like, okay, now I'll come to your church? Has that ever happened? I don't know. Maybe. It's weird, but Maybe. Besides, that isn't even how Jesus did things, is it? I mean, read the stories about Jesus in the Bible. That's not how he did it. What did he do? He just loved people. That's what he did. And he crossed all sorts of barriers and boundaries in order to do it, in order to accept and love and include those who are on the outside, the people who are marginalized. He healed people. He didn't ask for prerequisites. They didn't have to do certain things in order to be accepted. He just healed people. He rescued people. He gave people their lives back. He didn't argue with people in order to win them over to his side of things. He just invited people into a new, gracious, loving, and healing way of new life. That's how he did it. So think about your life. So just think about your life right now. Real specifically, is there anybody on the margins of society that, that you could embrace? Anybody in your life right now 
who's on the outside that you can put an arm around and say, come with me. I'm with you. I'll include you. I'm your friend. I'm on your side. I got your back. Is there anybody who is hurting who could just need your friendship? Is there anyone who could use your generosity? Is there anyone in your life that you could sacrifice for? Is there anyone, is there anyone you need to forgive and just let go and not make them pay for what they've done? Is there anyone you know who could use a community like this? Just invite them into our messy living room. Clearly, things ain't perfect here. Clearly, we don't have it all together here. Clearly, there's blankets strewn about and pillows on the floor and crusty dishes in the sink. So what? Come on in. You're welcome here. Welcome to our mess. Friends, let's never forget. We are not here for us, period. We are a lampstand. That's it. We simply are. We are a lampstand. And it's our job to just do our best to bring the light of God's love and salvation into the world for literally everybody. Let's pray.